0: This podcast is produced by Elmcore Youth and Adult Activities. Welcome everyone to this episode two, which is COVID and our understanding of violence. My name is Saida Dunstan, the Executive Director at Elmcore, and our guests today are Kay Bain and Michael Sean Spence. Welcome guys. Oh no. hey. Hey. Um, I just want to personally say these are two brothers that I highly respect. And one of the reasons why they're um, our second group is we're trying to put our heavies at the front end of our podcast so that people um, take us seriously. And what better than to have people who are credible? We're going to talk a little bit about credible messaging and what credible messengers are. And I think that these two brothers that we're speaking to today, Kay and Mike, are two individuals who I see are definitely credible and worthy of authenticity and having conversations with. So Kay Bain is a serial social entrepreneur and co-founder and executive director of Community Capacity Development. He's, this operation is committed to applying the human and healing justice models to providing tools and strategies for sustainable growth. CCD works directly in housing projects to facilitate community engagement and empowerment among high-risk youth. Formerly incarcerated people and marginalized residents of New York City. Kay is also the founding director and visionary of 696 Build Queensbridge, a violence interruption initiative in Long Island City, which has established itself as one of New York City's most effective cure violence sites and mediation services. So, welcome, Kay, again. I also have to say, Queensbridge is where my husband's from. Uh, it's also uh known to some but not to all as the largest um housing public housing complex some folks say in the country i always say make sure you say it's in the world there are not any other housing complex of that size and um when you put that many people in one space living at or below the poverty line there's just certain elements that have been structurally placed in so kay thank you for being with us
1: Thank you for having
0: me, And then we have Michael Sean Spence, who happens to be the vice chairman uh, here at Corps. And so not only is he great at what he does outside of his, in his work, he's also great at what he does here at the organization. Michael Sean is a results-driven attorney and criminal justice policymaker who served as the assistant district attorney in New York City, where he prosecuted domestic violence, organized tax evasion, and organized commercial theft as a member of the Queens County District Attorney Specialized Crime Against Revenue Unit. That took a lot to even say. The brother was, the brother was going after folks, um, pretty much doing a lot of white, what we would say is white-collar crime. In 2015, Michael Sean was appointed an Empire State Fellow in the Division of Criminal Justice by New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo. And in 2017, Michael Sean was appointed the Special Assistant to the Commissioner of the Division of Criminal Justice by Governor Cuomo. In 2018, Michael Sean assumed the role of Deputy Director of Criminal Justice Policy and Enforcement, at Every Town for Gun Safety, a gun violence prevention organization founded by Mike Bloomberg. And in 2019, Michael Sean was promoted to the Director of Policy and Implementation. Michael Sean has also appeared on television networks FUSE and VET as a featured guest, New York City radio station Hot 97 as a legal analyst, and has spoken at several colleges and universities on professional development and social justice issues. So, welcome, Michael.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So we're going to just jump right into it and just have a conversation. Um, The reason why we call this COVID and the understanding of violence is one of the things that Elmcore has taken on, and the reason why we started this podcast, is to really put more of a community understanding of what we're experiencing during COVID and what our communities, specifically Black and brown communities, experiencing. And so I thought it was really important to talk about COVID and violence because I don't think people are even recognizing the violence of COVID, right? The violence of not having enough hospital beds, the violence of not being able to have appropriate care, health care, and that that is violent and that economic structures that put us in situations to be more susceptible. To COVID is a violent structure. And so who better to talk to than two individuals that talk not just about violence or gun violence, but about justice, right? Human justice. And that that is a very different viewpoint than a lot of folks. So I want to kind of, um, I'll throw it to you first, Kay, just because we introduced you first. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this, this work and why is it critically important for you to be a partner in this work that you're doing.
1: Thank you, Saida. I appreciate that. So I think this work is definitely a calling. This is some of the most taxing, overwhelming, exhausting, fulfilling work a human being can engage in. Uh, When you work with people in communities of more color who have historically been disenfranchised and oppressed, you have to do transformative work around all of the... um, I'm thinking about the isms that we have to stand up against. I'm thinking about, it's been a long day, and it's been a long week. And this pandemic has exposed so much of the historical underlying factors that keep us in positions of subjugation. So me coming to the work, I'm someone who was born into poverty. I come from a family where my mother didn't have shoes at times in Trinidad and Tobago. And when they came to Brooklyn, New York, um, I was raised in a single parent home. Sometimes there were nine people in the apartment. Um, I didn't realize when I was younger that um, part of my attitude and my being upset or my facial expression was because I was hungry. I didn't always identify with that. I come from a, a background where I was told early in my educational process that I was ineducable. I could not be formally educated. I needed to be in special education. Myself and my brother, I was told that it, unless I received Ritalin, then I wouldn't be able to function in a school building, both myself and my brother. And again, um, I think about that sometimes, um, and the the steps that my mother took in her infinite wisdom to say, no, my my boy is not challenged. My boy is not being engaged properly in this so-called education system. But there were a lot of mothers that probably didn't have that wisdom or for some reason didn't make those choices, especially when the school building that I was in said, we would give you a check, Miss Dane. We would give you some money to try these drugs on your two boys. So somehow again, and thank God for mothers and their infinite wisdom. She said, no, 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 keep the money. And we needed it. Um, and we went through it. And I think about that when I look at my brother who was you know, the valedictorian for his class at Columbia University or at Gallatin program at NYU, or as he received his JD from Harvard Law, or some of the things I've been able to do academically with relative ease. I think about how many of us in communities of color are put into these boxes and given these labels and these masks and these identity limitations. So me doing this work in the largest housing development in the nation and arguably the world is because I learned so much growing up um, from my mentors, from those people who invested in me, those father figures that I sought out and found sometimes who directed me the long way around learning curve to get to the truth. Um, And I just wanna give that back. I wanna make sure that I can shorten that learning curve sometimes and use some of my real life experiences, i.e. my credibility to be an influence for positive change in our communities.
0: Thank you Kay for that. And I do wanna let the audience know if it seems to go in and out, it's because Kay is actually right now um, recording from the front lines. I have to say he's in the mix. They had a shooting response um, that he's pulled together in his community due to the uptick of violence in the city And so his internet might be going in and out, but it's because he's he's in oh, the yeah. of it. So um, thank you for that Michael If you could tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to wanting to do this work for our communities.
2: Yeah um, One thank you uh, Kay for sharing your story which one I find inspiring but also a lot of similarities with my own um, growing up a first-generation Um, child of Jamaican immigrants in Queens, not far from you. Um, So I I definitely relate with that story. But I would say my story is an effort to give voice to the voiceless, being that myself. Um, I'd say in 95, a gun was pulled on me on 34th Street. My chain was popped. And in the immediate days after that, um, being taken to the police precinct with my father, being prodded by the police to pick a face despite not wanting to, and ultimately never doing that, and then ultimately feeling that um, I did not have a voice as a young Black male in America, which propelled me to go through school the way I did, um, and uh, in an effort to, one, have a voice and give a voice to many others. So first, starting out as a prosecutor, being able to represent folks within my own community, particularly going after businesses, um, going after those that objectified and victimized those that lived in the same communities as my own but then also feeling as if I wasn't moving the needle enough to really impact enough lives to really change. Um, that gave me the, the idea to go to the state level where I was able to focus then on issues that did directly and disproportionately impact Black folks, particularly the people who lived amongst the, the folks that I cared the most about. Um, and I was then able to support the Gun of All Violence Elimination Initiative, which is focused on the 17 counties in New York State outside of the city with the highest levels of part one crime, those being your most violent. Um, I was able to support uh, intersection of community stakeholders and law enforcement to implement evidence-based strategies, and I learned that they worked. Um, And then I was able to transition to every town where I was able to find the necessary resources to not only focus on New York State, but on all the cities across the country that are dealing with disproportionate gun violence. We know that more than half of the gun-related homicides happen in only 125 cities. We know that one to 3% of those cities are actually involved in and exposed to the social networks and the groups that are engaged in the gun violence. And that's why strategies like street outreach work, hospital-based violence intervention programs work because they identify those who are in that small one to 3% portion of your population and they're able to really deploy that public health approach that puts them back on a path to progress. Um, so, so now I'm in a position where I'm able to resource those groups in a number of ways. There's direct support. Then there's also the advocacy, which is even more, more impactful at the federal level, the state level, the local level, making sure that the resources that these groups have been clamoring for for decades, because let's, let's not um, you know gloss over the fact that these groups have long been on the front lines and responding to gun violence every single day. They've been asking and demanding the resources that now cities and states are saying, aha, we need to provide. They're now centering these groups in the middle of a comprehensive strategy as if these groups did not ask for decades ago. So now the job is also to advocate to make sure those resources are available and then to show up and be supportive and in solidarity and let these groups lead um, because they already figured it out. Um, and now that's my job to to point to them and, and help center their efforts
0: thank, thank you mike that was That was a great, great kind of a just an explanation of how you got here, but more importantly, where you want to go, right? Like you clearly have your vision of where you want to go. and Kay, thank you as well for sharing your your road because I could imagine how many young people, like you said, have your story um, and how we look at where people end up as just something that they've done or something that's happened without really looking at, you know, the cliche or even at this point of looking at the root causes of how people get here, you know, it just doesn't happen. And so I want us to talk a little bit about Cure Violence, just as a model and credible messengers and how those models are connected to other community stakeholders, how it works. And I, I kind of want to put in the context, Elmcorp has been around for 55 years, right? Um, We've been doing this work, primarily Elmcorp started with recreation, starting with young people to do just what a lot of Cure Violence projects wanna do, find a safe space for young people to be at at a time where there was high violence and a lot of drug use. The time it was heroin, so we always said Elmcorp, this ain't no new epidemic for us. Um, It might be new for you, but we've been dealing with this for 55 years. And in 1968 at Elm when the organization decided not just to find safe space for young people, but to really address drug treatment, they went to Jamaica, Queens to find this guy named Lou Benson, who happens to be um, one of uh, the folks on our board, but used to also run our our rehabilitation program for years. But as we say, the first credible messenger at Encore, right? Like, everyone knows Lou, everyone knows that the reason why he was brought in is because he was respected on the streets, that if he went outside and said, you can't sell drugs on this corner, that you weren't going to sell drugs, that he was known for his hands. Uh, Kay has a boxing setup in in his space we have a boxing setup in our space because of Lou, because when you're a credible messenger, what you know is it's not alternatives to aggression, it's energy redirection, right? Our, our young people just need to redirect their energy, not their aggression, right? And so we have those pieces in Elmcore and it's been woven in for 55 years. So it's thrilling to talk to you guys now about these programs that now have names, like you said, Mike, that's been, a, people been doing this for forever, but now they have names right now. Now it's called a credible messenger at the time. It was just Uncle Lou. So maybe you guys could kind of tell me a little bit from your perspectives and either one of you guys jump in how you see to help people really understand what is a cure of violence? What is a credible messenger model?
2: Well, I'll say this as a bit of a history um, Going back to the late 1990s, when Dr. Gary Sluckin, who's uh, the leader of Cure Violence, was doing research in Africa, he found a similarity between the spread of gun violence and infectious diseases. He found that it spread similarly to someone catching the flu or a cold. Although there might be that person who has that direct impact, it also impacts all of the individuals in their ecosystem, their friends, their families. There's far-reaching impacts of the violence beyond the, the immediate impact. Um, and recognizing that, he rec- he realized that he needed to approach it in the similar way. You need to strike at the root cause, and you needed to have some sort of medicinal approach, that being the credible messenger. An individual who has the trust um, in the community, likely because they have strong relationships they are also uniquely positioned to then identify people who are most at risk. When I have conversation with mayors and police departments, the thing I tell them is, they can figure it out before you can. You can't engage an individual until they're arrested. They can identify someone before they've ever picked up a firearm. And that's the unique art of it because they are in the streets, they have those relationships, that credibility, like you mentioned, makes them enabled to identify and engage people. And like I mentioned before, put them on that path to progress. So that's basically the, the crux of the public health approach of the Cure Violence Model.
1: I would, I would add on, so I think that, um, yeah, looking at violence in its behavior as, as a communicable disease and, and having that comparison, uh, treating violence as a public health issue, humanizing people on both sides of a gun, understanding that hurt people hurt people, not to be cliche, but that, that's a fact. We learn violence it's a learn behavior. Um, And I come from communities where you are nine and 10 times more likely to be shot and killed. That's where I grew up, that's where I spent my time. So I learned very early in my life to use violence to communicate. I understood early that violence actually met certain human needs in short-term destructive ways, but it met them. It made me feel safe when I had uh, a firearm. I remember talking speaking to Mayor Bloomberg years ago as he was planning out some of these initiatives and he would kick everybody out of the bullpen and that little circle that we would sit in, about five people, he would say, everybody leave except K. Bain. And he would sit down and he asked me, I remember one day he said, so K. Bain, I'm gonna ask you a stupid question. It might sound ignorant, please. I said, there's no such thing. So he said, why does a black boy, young man, carry a firearm? A teenager walk around the city of New York with a loaded firearm in the waistband. I said, well, Mayor Bloomberg, I." I want to answer your question honestly and sincerely, but I didn't carry around a firearm as a teenager when I was 14, 15, and 16. I carried two. I usually got dressed with my belt on and loaded up two different, because that's how I felt safe. And so then we got into a deeper conversation about what it is to be in survival mode. And I think the Cure Violence model itself um, really does a great job of emphasizing the fact that those of us who have come from the survival mode mentality can be empathetic and a part of that cure or those those antidotes to uh, those distressed and looking at violence as the only communication
0: option. Thank you for um, sharing. And you guys are like just hitting exactly what I think people need to hear, especially when you talk about the public health and understanding gun violence or violence as a whole is a public health issue. So I want to also kind of ask you this question. Right now, there's definitely a conversation about the uptick of violence um, within communities across the country, right? So not just New York, not just Queens, not just Brooklyn, but across the country, what we're seeing is happening during this pandemic is this uptick in violence. and I kind of want to ask you guys what are the things that are not being discussed in the media coverage? What are the things that are not being tagged as stuff we need to talk about? As an organization that clearly walks in all spaces saying we're an anti racist, anti poverty um, organization, and then we clearly say after that, but do understand we do not use black, brown, and poverty interchangeably, right? We always make sure that that's understood. We know that race will trump poverty all times and in all spaces, especially in this place we call the Americas. But in the media, there's a lot of conversations. And I feel like, you know, sometimes conversations about systematic racism is missing in this dialogue. But I wanna hear from you guys. What do you think is missing? When we're talking about how come there's so much gun violence during COVID, what is are, what are no one saying? What are people not saying?
2: I think as you, as you're pointing to, there's a lack of solidarity behind an understanding that this is due to a long standing um, understood pattern um, of systemic um, racism, deliberate policy positions um, and disinvestment in communities, primarily black communities um, that have been left to, to, to fight for themselves. Um, and made them ripe for public health epidemics, whether they be gun violence or COVID. I think the other piece that's missing is that these groups have never stopped working. They never stopped. I mean, there's been conversation about people staying at home and they couldn't stop because the violence has persisted, it's increased. In fact, many of them are working harder than they were before. They've had to transition many of their support services online and that's not just logging into Zoom and Google. Sometimes that means providing an iPad or a laptop. That's expensive. And then many of these groups are dependent on grants and funding from cities and states that are tied up in ribbons. So it's hard to now adapt because there's little discretion in those budgets. So you see them trying to adapt. And then on top of that, um, what's being whispered about is that cities are leaning on them now they're a centerpiece of their response, whether it's a response to um, the rightful protests for social reform due to the murder of George Floyd, um, or as they reimagine police accountability and reformation, they're now bringing these folks to the table while they're still responding to the violence. And then they're being asked to now, can you hand out the mask and the PPE on the corner? Can you do that? because if we hand it out, they're not gonna take it from us and they might not wear it. Can you, can you help us tell, tell them where they can test it? They might listen to you. And in some cities, that's a critical piece of the strategy in Oakland. I spoke with the director of uh, violence prevention and he said they, they did an analysis with the Oakland PD. They found that the nine beats that have their highest levels of gun violence, guess what, also had the highest levels of COVID infection. So they centered the street outreach group in a three-pronged effort. They had them doing the testing. They had them distributing the PPE while resourcing them to continue to be the front line. So that's what I think the media isn't talking about, that they've only been busier, that the the budgets have been more constrained um, and that the horizon doesn't look much better. Much of these states and cities um, are, are looking with a lot of budget um, gaps. I mean, I'm I'm talking with a number of cities, anywhere from five million to more than 150, and others. And I won't I won't say the name of them, but cities are really dealing with um, large pitfalls. So, this is where the federal government comes in, and this yeah. is where the federal government has to step up and make sure these groups are accounted for in their relief packages but that generally there's a sustainable fund that they can draw on. For too long, these groups have been dependent on law enforcement locally to cut them a check, bring them to the table. Same thing with the states. Federal government needs to, to, to really acknowledge the value in these evidence-based groups and strategies, the lives they've saved and continue to save, the role that cities are now increasingly asking them to play and, and make sure that they have the resources they need. So that's what they're
0: not talking about that. I appreciate that. And I appreciate that more importantly, because you hit on some stuff that, like I said, people don't want to talk about. You know, they're not just asking them to go to the front lines because they're credible. They're asking them because they're scared to come. They don't want to come. And it's the same reason why they have used us before. We have always been um, readily cheap labor, and I say that because they should have funded these programs that everyone doing these programs appropriately before they wouldn't have to be worried about people's ability using um, a word that you have K okay, in, in your your um, company's name. The capacity you we wouldn't even be having to talk about developing capacity if they had appropriately funded folks that had been saving folks since the beginning right and so um, thank you for sharing that because that's the frustration right the frustration that those of us who've been doing this work and are constantly doing this work we are not heroes right we don't we don't um, subscribe to the, the hero mentality because that would make it seem like our community needs to be saved our community needs to be appropriately resourced because they have sucked resources out of our community long enough. So Kay, please, what aren't they talking about?
1: Uh, I think Brother Michael, he, he touched it on a lot of levels. I'm, I'm definitely, um, I know that you're in the work. I know that you, because <laughs> the way that you're talking, you're speaking about it, you're describing, you, you just went through my week and my last three months. You're like, at the table, this is how. So what, what they're not saying is that and New York City, historically and currently, is one of the most hyper-segregated cities in the country. And we don't think about it that way. We don't think about the fact that, I mean, Queensbridge houses where the median income is $13,000 a year, but four blocks away, it's $133,000. And people know the difference. We don't, we don't acknowledge the poverty pockets that, that exist. We don't, we don't speak on the fact that there are seven neighborhoods in New York City that supply over 74% of the inmates and incarcerated people throughout the state of New York. We don't don't look at that that's been the same for 40 years plus. These are not things that are in the conversation. The fact that, as you said, we are cheap labor. We do this with no badge, no gun, no pension, no bulletproof vest, sometimes no pay, no health care, and no acknowledgement. And so I came to Queensbridge Houses to do this work because I did it in Brooklyn, New York. I did it in Southside, Jamaica, Queens. I did it in different cities around the country. And I said, if I can bring what we know works and what my mentors and the Eddie Ellis's and those that came before me, taught me and trained me in to the largest housing development, then it would be undeniable. And I would be in conversations with people who have access to resources because I've been the executive director of community development since... April 1st, we got the contract. It's been a year or so before that, but we received the contract. i received less than $30,000 from the city of New York to date. I've spent over $164,000 between April and June of my money. I'm still spending. So all of this work that you see happening, there were over 300 people outside of my office as I started this Zoom call from around New York City in support of the work. But the resources don't land. And when the police department has a $6 billion, excuse me, a $10.5 billion budget because they're not accounting for the other costs in those undisclosed, unappropriated units of funding that are there on the budget, right? And we look at a cure violence that we brought literally to New York City in 2009 and 10. I was in the city council then. I was in the city council doing research with eight lawyers looking at what evidence-based models would work in our city. And I was looking at things in New Orleans and looking at places where police were, out of, and I found ceasefire and I didn't like it. I didn't like it because it was too heavy relying on law enforcement. Then I saw Cure Violence evolving. And with this group of attorneys, and I'm far from it, I, I, I might have took the LSAT and got scared away. But I sat with these brilliant attorneys who went with me and we did the research and we brought Cure Violence as a model to New York City in 2009, 2010, under council member D. Williams at the time. We organized the gun violence task force with uh, Councilmember Cabrera on that task force. We located 20 different advocates from around New York City and we started saying, what would it look like to have this evidence-based model in our city? Then we put the speaker of the time, speaker Christine Quinn in the headlock and we took $4.8 million and distributed it into a pilot program. Snug already existed with Malcolm Smith and others, but we brought it to the city of New York. And we've grown that from a $4.8 million investment to a $50 million investment since 2010. And since then, we've been working diligently. I've had panel discussions, respectful debates with Dr. Gary Slutkin several times over in different cities because when we started meeting and speaking on panels, I would say this needs to be put inside of a holistic approach that considers the dimensions and the layers and levels, especially of black and brown people. And he said, Kate Bain, I don't agree with the everything under the sun approach. I don't think that you have to consider employment, mental health, all these other aspects of humanity. I feel I'm a surgeon and this model, Cure Violence can go directly. And I said, yes. And I used the model in the format that it came and then I did exactly the opposite. And I co-architected the crisis management system to provide holistic wraparound services because I know what works in my community. I learned it from Elm I learned it from the Greenhaven Think Tank. I learned it from the December 12th. I learned it from the Black Panther Party. I learned it from my community. But I said yes because that was the vehicle that would allow us to continue in the work that we had to do. We call it human justice work because we know that human rights, awareness, understanding of our validity as human beings, which is constantly violated and disrespected, plus human development, which is the resource part of this, because I can know my rights all day if I have nothing, right? Or if I go the other way and I just get resources, but I'm not grounded in the truth and have a moral compass and understand what I'm worth. So human rights plus human development equals human justice. Now we can shift the paradigm from criminal justice to human justice following this equation. So this model is very important to me, but as was pointed out here by both of you, This is the work our people have been doing, When we feed each other. We work closely with UMCOR to feed people. What does that have to do with violence interruption? Why am I going to UMCOR to get supplies and, and materials and produce and eggs and bringing them to Woodside? When I work in Queensbridge, well, violence moves like a communicable disease. So the people that are shooting in Queensbridge are from Woodside. So I have to work in four housing developments simultaneously. This is the public health approach. And again, a lot of it we have been doing for a very long time. Before there was a Dr. Gary Slutkin, a cure of violence, a cease fire, any of this. But I, again, respect tremendously the fact that we have access to this model, the evaluations from John Jay, the other independent evaluations at you know University of Chicago, et cetera, excellent. But we're gonna do this work again, and we do it with pay, without pay, with acknowledgement, without acknowledgement. Now I would prefer to do it with resources.
0: <laughs> I know that's right. I would much I prefer know that's to
1: right. It with resources. But you know, we're gonna do the work.
0: I, I appreciate that. And and the reason why I say I know that's right is we talk about a lot of this, but I meant what I said when I say they suck the resources out of our community as well. We have we didn't just start doing this. We've been taking care of other people since we arrived here. Since we've gotten here we have been known as the people to take care of other people and all we're demanding is that just like the redlining that goes on in our, our communities with housing and there is a philanthropy redlining there is a clear redlining there's a clear under-resourcing of black led and brown led organizations there's a lack of respect for us when we come to the table to ask for funds when if you look at many of these models, we talk about that at Elm Corps from treatment. Um, there's the treatment models that people use and then there's the treatment models that work. And when you look at back to the 60s when the Nation of Islam was doing treatment, when, when, when the Black Panthers were doing treatment, when Elm Corps was doing treatment in the 60s, we know how to do this. And if you fund us accordingly, we'll do so. And I agree that we're here and I hope that now our speakers see why I brought you brothers in. Because we're having some real conversations. We're not sugarcoating what's happening in this because this impacts us differently. This is our community. This is not, um, I made the joke, Diddy, when he had done his uh, town hall when COVID first started. I remember him saying, I don't want nobody talking nice. We, you know, you saw him finally get hyped about the fact that like, this is my people and we're dying. Because when it's us, we feel differently. We're passionate about our folks, and we should be. And I think you guys touched on the public health aspect and really understanding and talking and connecting it to infectious diseases and talking about covid it's really clear for folks, right? It's really clear that it is the exact type of movement. They talk about why is this, why is COVID so contagious? Because other things have been contagious and you've paid no attention to it because it didn't impact you. Because it wasn't contagious in your world, because it wasn't affecting your life. You weren't concerned about contagion. But now contagion has knocked on your door and now you're like, oh my God, but these things have always been a public health issue. We Talk about that in the opioid epidemic. Mike, I see you, you ready, I'm gonna let you go because we talk about this opioid epidemic and now you know people are dying from overdoses. Black men are still dying from overdoses right now at a higher rate than white men. But we're not even having those conversations. We know contagion because you have, you've left infection for us, right? So, I'm letting
2: so, you go, brother. <laughs> so, you, so you talk about contagion, and I can't help but, but, but want to say that it was designed this way. When you talk about redlining, and even when you talk about gerrymandering and suppressing the vote, it was designed this way. We were all stuffed into these small, as you mentioned, Kay, pockets in these densely populated communities. That's how contagion spreads. That's literally the design of it. You put people in these small areas, you take out the resources, you prevent them from accessing opportunity, and then public health epidemics, gun violence, COVID, um, obesity, whatever it is, it will take grasp. And and what most people don't want to acknowledge is that it can actually be fixed it can actually be fixed. And then those within the community have figured it out. And if you give them the resources and, and actually allow them to take the lead, we might see some more progress. And and I'd be remiss if I didn't note that we've actually seen a lot of progress in New York City over the last couple of decades. You know, um, there's been a huge, huge decline in the gun violence in the 90s at the peak of the gun violence epidemic, and in large part due to the work um, done by folks like Kay. So they figured it out. What's happening right now is that COVID has exacerbated all those underlying root causes that we've been striking at, all those intersectional issues, the poverty, the food insecurity, housing insecurity, all of these issues that we had pro-social activities and support services to support and to address were all of a sudden paused. All of a sudden, folks had to go home. All of these different programs that Credible Messengers were able to plug folks into were no longer available, despite the violence continuing and now increasing. It was by design. So when we talk about gerrymandering, redlining, you have to literally think about when that started back in the 40s and 50s, because it was intentional.
1: Freedom is acquired by conquest, not by gift. It must be pursued constantly and responsibly. It's not a myth located outside of man, nor is an ideal which becomes, but is rather the indispensable condition for the quest for human completion. Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, page 47, talks about true generosity and false generosity. And in true generosity versus false generosity, that's where our conversation is going. False generosity treats the symptoms of problems, and it even saves lives sometimes. So you have people that will invest on a level, and what it does is it eases the oppressor. It eases those who control the resources. Say I gave, but they want to do nothing and no action to change the structure, to really affect status quo. So false generosity is actually the enemy of freedom false generosity is the enemy of freedom and another level to what the brother pointed out so eloquently it not only has been allowed to be so this status quo that we're describing it also benefits you think Elon Musk invented an electric car that's not his invention you think that there's a reason why I'm in a housing development right now and there's level six oil pumping in the boilers in this building and all the surrounding buildings in the 3,100 apartments. And then 20 years ago in the Upper East Side, it was pumping and they said, this is a tragedy, stop immediately and they shut down. It's called environmental racism. The health disparities that we experience here have been allowed to exist because the medical industry is a multi-billion dollar for-profit. forefront. America's not a... Country is a company. Let's get that straight. <laughs> and so it's not that it's not that these issues we have violence and violence have been the solution. It's false generosity when the resources I'm describing, I helped create a 50 million plus dollar system in New York City. I had that vision and others put in the legwork to do that. And I haven't got thirty thousand. Do you, so speak when, on it?
0: So speak when, on it.
1: So, when we talk about what's been allowed to happen in New York City public schools, $5,000 a year per student. I'll take you to an institution like Rikers and others, $330,000 for an incarcerated. So, when, when you want to talk about your priorities, whoever you are, show me your budget. If you want to know what type of man I am, what type of human being I am, go into and look at where I spend my money. Look at how I, that's what I prioritize. I learned that in the City Council of New York as a councilmatic aide or chief of staff. I learned that as an advisor to Bloomberg or de Blasio. Show me where you place your dollars, and, I'll, and then I'll show you what your priorities really are. And a lot of the time, the devil is in the details. Yes, so when we talk about defunding law enforcement, let's talk about it. When we talk about move a billion dollars, the devil is in the details. You can move that, and we never see it. It doesn't have an impact. It won't last. It won't land, it won't transform, it won't revolutionize anything. And you've moved some digits on an Excel sheet. I know the budget dance. I worked on a $90 billion budget for many years as a budget director. I'm very familiar with the budget. I know what portion we're gonna talk about and not talk about and move and put back. I know the timing of it. So that being said, we're not being fooled by that anymore. It's not about a billion dollars. It's not about defunding police. It's about redirecting funds to the people in ways that an impact can be seen and measured. And so the reason we grab this model, the reason we do it is because we know how to Im- impact and affect change in our communities. It's just like was said earlier, we're not re- receiving what the paperwork says we should receive. And it's a tragedy because we do get prodded out. They do say, Cape May, come do this press conference. The last time the mayor came to Queensbridge, I said $4.6 million. I want every site in New York City to get an increase. He said, okay. I asked for nine. I got four and a half. The next time he came, it was a $10 million. Like I'm saying, bring these resources. We should not have to, to starve. We should not have to to do this righteous work that is essential for our communities to thrive.
0: Because we because we want to also say and as I said we don't use race and poverty interchangeably but let's be clear you can't solve poverty with poverty you can't you can't under-resource somebody and tell them you want to attack something that is way larger than any person is allowed to attack by themselves you can't disalign people in a way you can't you can't have the right the right groups all competitive, being comp- um, competitive about money Like, there's no competition. K needs what he needs and I need what I need. This is not a one or the other. We're not looking for the magical Negro moment. You know, we need you to support all of these organizations. And so I want to say to our listeners again, welcome to our living room at Elmcore. These are the conversations that we have in order to build community. We cannot build community. So I want to say, as an anti-racist, we know that, you know, anti-racism is about organizing. And there's a lot of organizing going on or what might appear to be organizing happening around a lot of the um, racial unrest, as it's being called, about police brutality and all of this stuff. And so I want to get from you guys what you understand your accountability to be to young people specifically around um, what's happening in the racial unrest and the brutality and because we're also coming on time, but that's what happens when we're having a good time and we talk and we don't even realize it, I'm going to ask that question and also ask you, too, to kind of connect it for yourselves with a lot of the traumatic experiences of watching George Floyd and videos and, you know, this um, these public lynchings that are going on that we have to see that's no longer happening in the backwoods, that they would then trek you they treat black kids out later on to see, right? And so they would know, but now everyone sees it, it's happening and it's traumatic. And I want to ask you to, as a black woman, as a woman in leadership, you know, I talk about it regularly that I really, I really am concerned about black and brown men right now, black and brown boys who are watching their lives literally be snuffed out um, not just in the streets where they live, but even people they don't know in the media. And so I want you to kind of talk about your accountability and what you see your accountability to be, but just share a little bit of even how you guys are making it through this time of having to be available, having to be an organizer, having to be real. Mike and I spoke last night. I did watch the Youssef Hawkins um documentary last night on HBO and it triggered a lot for me because I was a teenager then that was my time that was my life and talk about for your perspective put in perspective to folks on who are listening to us that leaders are human beings going through this work and we're still accountable how we're accountable and how you're personally impacted
2: I appreciate the question and and I note first that it's infrequent that I and I, I'm sure Kay, even get the opportunity to answer a question like that. So I appreciate you asking it to start. Um, It's been incredibly difficult. Um, The work in itself is difficult, Um, but then also to constantly hear about uh, another death. And for my uh, work, it's it's across the country, it's various cities, it's at many different levels. I was mentioning to you last night that um, a number of mayors have gotten to the habit of calling me or texting me daily, um, and I'm I'm right there with them trying to figure out how to best respond and to find resources, but also, as Kay was mentioning, those evidence-based strategies that we already know work that are already being implemented in many of their communities and how we can further um, build their capacity. Um, but for me, it's been an external fight in that way, but then also an internal fight. Um, I work within an organization where I'm in the vast minority, of black people, particularly black men, I'm the only black male in senior leadership, um, and I would say the only black person that leads a substantive team um, that actually develops policy and um, can can provide resources to groups on the ground. So, in this moment, as I've identified that, the need was increasing, um, battling on the inside to increase those resources and and fortunately doing it successfully was my immediate challenge but then finding the best space where I could then be a spokesperson not only for the work and the organization but for myself and my people was the next step. Um, and I know that you saw an op-ed that I wrote in, in, in the Newsweek, in Newsweek rather last week, but that was two months of writing. Um, that was two months of figuring out where I needed to, to be as a person and where the org needed to, to go uh, in this moment. Um, I also see this as a as a flashpoint moment that will hopefully lead to a movement that truly centers these groups, and I see an opportunity to do that. I I see K. Bain is the 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 representative of the sort of strategies and people that need to be in the forefront. They need to to have the mic. Um, they need to not only be at the table but determine when the table is sat at, because you know. If we're gonna be real about this, the only path forward is community-led alternatives to public safety. That's the only path forward. The community has to not only have input in what those strategies are that are being implemented, but they have to be at the forefront of it to the extent possible. There are gonna always be instances that will be too dangerous for a civilian to respond to. But to the extent a civilian can, they should. We should decrease the footprint of police. We should decrease unnecessary civilian contacts. There are many instances where it's been shown that having a, a, a firearm present makes the situation more lethal. Perhaps have someone respond who doesn't have one. So that's my perspective on where my role is and what I'm accountable, how I can be accountable to my community is by advancing those, those strategies.
1: I, I want to say I know we're wrapping up. I want to say how refreshing it is. First, the question, but also to 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 really meet a brother who uh, is navigating in those waters and representing us so well. Because too often, I don't know what happens when we get into certain positions. We work hard to get there, and then somehow we lose ourselves. But I, I'm always, again, I'm I'm so refreshed. Is someone who is from the people, for the people, of the people, and, you know, and and making those moves in those spaces. I I gotta tell you that because somebody might not have told you today, but salute to you um, for staying true. To yourself and to all of us. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It's inspiring after a long day. um, I think the question you asked made me think of um, the calls I get from mayors and the governor or two sometimes uh you know asking for strategy or or just they're in a state of confusion or the nypd texts i get um, all the way up to the commissioner himself to make comments or ask questions in their confusion saying like we're acting like we have answers we don't have i'm just being being real Um, or as sister sahita said sometimes locally they're afraid of certain situations and they know we're not so they'll say, listen, if you can go over there, you know, you guys can that that same. And it's like, man, it's daunting. I'm upset that I know what a transient ischemic attack is. I shouldn't have that in my book. I'm 44 years young. I run five miles just because I feel like it on a Friday. I bench press 365 pounds, no spot off my chest. I mean, I'm doing Navy SEAL push-ups. And I've had a stroke because... That we takes every every ounce and every body and soul sometimes, and I've watched young people that I've worked with that I've taught them in my vehicle. I've seen them grow and then watch them murdered, and I have their bloody T-shirts in my home in my closet, and I speak to their parents still, and I speak to their siblings still, and I work with their family members, and I've watched their family members die, and I've spoken at their funerals. These are children that I've known and come to love and see as my own family. And so this work to me is a part of who I am. It's a part of my responsibility, obligation, commitment, calling, Um, and I wanna see it done properly. I wanna see it done correctly. I wanna see it done with empathy. I wanna see it done right. And what I know about the work I do, coming to Queensbridge to put in this human justice model on top of the Cure Violence model that lends over it. I wanna see that happen not only in the 27 sites where I provide technical assistance in New York City and training in New York City. I wanna see what we've learned implemented around the country and around the world because I know when that happens, I've done my job. We have a tool at CCD called the Sustainable Growth Plan. And this is an amazing tool that was developed and is being Worked on right now. We need money to turn it into an app because I'm tired of carrying it on paper into facilities. I'm tired of sitting with children and youth and using all this paper to do something that came um, by way of of you know mentorship, but also the things that saved my life when I was 15 and I got in a fist fight and was looking at 15 years in prison. I didn't have a 10-year goal or plan. I didn't have a three-year goal of plan. I didn't have a one-year goal of plan. I didn't know what benchmarks to set to meet those. But this tool that, we, that we've codified does that. It says, what is your purpose to separate your path from your A man would have, would have asked me that as a team I would be. So I, we put together this tool called the Sustainable Growth Plan. And I've seen it literally transform the lives of young people and my staff members. So somebody named Homicide or Homo, they call them in Queensbridge, who's been shot multiple times, who has shot multiple people in Queensbridge went from a violence interrupter to an outreach worker, to an outreach worker supervisor, into a program manager. But I know his 10-year goal. I know his three-year and his one-year. I know that for every single person that's employed here, I know what their purpose is and how they define it. I know their social capital. This tool that we created allows you to codify that and put that in a space. It's about growth. And so my dream is to give a billion people on the planet Earth in multiple languages this tool that I came across late in life, but would have saved me earlier from a lot of the tribulation and things I had to go through to build my credibility.
0: Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Michael, Sean, Spence, Kate Bain, for just talking to me today. Um, this is something that is important to us at Elmcore. You guys have given us definitely inspiration. It's necessary to um, continue on and to make sure that. The mission and the purpose that started Elmcor 55 years ago still exists. It exists not just in Corona, not just in East Elmhurst, but it's in Queensbridge. It's throughout the city. It's nationally being covered by you guys. That you all are not just credible messengers um, for this work, but credible messengers for our communities. And that you are bringing the word out and that you're courageous We say this all the time. We don't want to have regular conversations. We want to have courageous dialogue and courageous talk. So on behalf of Elm Youth and Adults Activities, we'd like to thank you all for joining us today. And remember to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Elm Corp, and follow us on um, Instagram, at Elmcore as well as our Twitter accounts and Facebook and just thank you for sharing your time with us and we hope that you are able to learn something today because it's not just that knowledge is power, but that we are actually the resource that holds the power.